0: The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And down to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So the Apostle John um, uh, most likely wrote
1: this letter um, from Ephesus late in the first century AD. It was probably written to the, the various church, churches in the uh, Roman province of Asia, which is uh, modern-day Turkey, the area where, where, where John was. So John wrote to churches that were under attack. They were under danger of false uh, teaching. Uh, this morning we were thinking about Peter writing to churches facing um, some persecution this evening, we're, we're looking at churches facing false teaching. Um, now this false teaching, we, it, it, it's often hard to pinpoint exactly what the teaching was. Probably it was some early form of Gnosticism, which essentially sees the, the, the physical world as a, a bad and an evil thing and sees the spiritual world as a good thing um, and the sort of body is evil and it probably taught that salvation is achieved through gaining special knowledge. So Gnosticism, is, it means knowledge, so the idea that we get our salvation through some special exclusive knowledge that we get direct from God rather than coming to faith in Jesus Christ. So, so possibly that's what's going on. What, what we certainly know about the false teaching present in John's day was, was what the letter tells us. And, it, and, it, and, and uh, the key things it tells us are this. First of all, the, the, the church is under attack from teachers who are denying the critical and central truths about Jesus. Secondly, they denied or or reduced or diminished the need for holy living, for living Christ-like lives. And thirdly, they were causing division and separation amongst God's people. They were breaking the fellowship, if you like. So John then, in the light of that, writes with two purposes. The first one is to combat and to show up this false teaching. And the second one, and perhaps the more substantial one, is this, to give assurance or reassurance to God's people that they they truly have eternal life through trusting in Jesus. Um, Chapter 5, verse 13 is an important verse, and it says this, "I, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you might know that you have eternal life. And the the theme of knowledge and certainty and knowing for God's people, that we really might know that we are his, that we are saved, runs throughout this letter. You'll see that word know, know over and over again, perhaps over and against a sort of a a special Gnostic knowledge. We have a a certain knowledge. That's really important. So if you read this letter, and and John does write in quite a black and white way sometimes, and if you read it it and it seems really harsh, well, remember that this book is written to encourage and to reassure and to give assurance to God's people that they really know Jesus. And and, and John sets out three tests in the book, um, which correspond to what we've just seen in terms of the teaching. He sets out a truth test. What do you believe about Jesus? Do you believe the truth about Jesus? There's an obedience test. Do we obey God's commands? And thirdly, a love test. Do we love one another as Christians? Uh, And I guess we're meant to see those things and be encouraged by them. So, this Sunday night and next week, we're going to be looking at the first chapter and just the first couple of verses of chapter 2. Um, there's, a, there's an important theme of fellowship or, or relationship with God here, uh, and uh, we're going to be looking tonight at verses 1 to 4, which is a, a kind of a prologue, and it, it might remind you quite distinctly of what we read earlier, the, the first part or part of the prologue from, from John's Gospel. John's Gospel. Um, so let's have a look in your Bibles then at John chap- uh, one, John chapter one and verse one, and we're going to read those first four verses. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, and which we have looked upon and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father. Do you ever wish that the Christian message was less dependent on the Bible? Now, it may be for someone here, you are already thinking at this point, well, no, I love the Bible. Um, I can go to sleep now, I guess. Well, hold on a little bit longer, because we need to think about that question a little bit more carefully. Um, Be honest with yourself. Um, Don't you sometimes think a little bit like this? Well... But the the message of the Bible is great, isn't it? To be in a relationship with the eternal God, the loving God who made the world, well, that's a glorious thing. To know that you're loved and cared for by the creator of the universe, well, that's extraordinary. That he hears me when I speak to him. Well, That's amazing, isn't it? But if I'm honest, there are times when I, I find some of the things that the Bible says really quite tough. It's difficult to believe in today's culture and to stand up for. And perhaps you are here, and actually sometimes you're a little bit embarrassed by what the Bible says. It tells us of a Jesus who claims to be the only way to God. That's hard, isn't it? That's exclusive. It excludes everybody else and every other religion and belief. And that just doesn't sit right sometimes. Or eternal punishment for all who fail to trust in him. The idea of hell. Is that not judgmental? Or a holy God who has unchanging moral standards that just won't fit into what we consider to be morality in today's society and and leads to claims of Christianity being bigoted. And maybe we feel the weight of that, and that's hard. This book is so outdated, isn't it? Who here, Christian or not Christian, hasn't wished that it's different sometimes? And anyway, hasn't modern scholarship shown us a better way? Hasn't it disproved the need to take the Bible literally? And can't we approach the text and figure out what the real truth is and filter out all the stuff that Jesus' followers added later and and embellished and changed? Isn't there something? Can't we get back to a real Jesus, a Jesus who's relevant for today, a Jesus who fits in with our society and the truth of, 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 of what we now know? Don't we need to move on from the Bible as it is? Don't we need to update the message? And wouldn't that make Jesus so much more attractive to our world? So maybe for you, that's a big deal. But for someone else, perhaps that's not really your issue. The thing you find hard is going to people and saying, God has spoken to this world and it's written down in a book that was produced 2,000 years ago and it hasn't changed since. Surely if there's a God, our world tells us, people around say to us, friends and relatives say, surely if there's a God, he'd do something more dramatic, something more current Surely he would speak to us now in a more dramatic way. And maybe that's what we need. Maybe we need services where we have a more tangible, exciting experience of God. The sense of heaven coming down to earth. Miracles, powerful emotional experiences, a voice speaking. Don't we need that? Perhaps we can go to another church and and perhaps we can find something that looks like that. Surely God should be doing something more than just giving us this. And the world around us encourages and bombards us with these thoughts. And who here hasn't struggled with those kind of doubts from time to time? And if you're here this evening, you're not yet a Christian. Maybe these are precisely the kind of things that stop you and make it hard for you from coming to Jesus. Well, when John wrote this letter in the, in the latter part of the first century, things weren't so different. It was maybe 60 years since Jesus died. And maybe now the time was to update things, you know? New teachers had come along, we have been thinking about that. They were trying to influence the churches. They denied the key teachings about Jesus, the apostles had passed on. You need to update the message, you see. It seems as well, uh, reading in in chapter 2, that they might well have claimed some kind of special anointing from God some extra revelation, something new and more exciting. Don't worry about what John and those apostles told you. We've heard a new message. We've got something better for you. And undoubtedly, all of this was attractive. John, an old man, as he writes, looks on and he sees both the attraction of this message and the danger of it. And so he writes to them to reassure them to stick with the truth. And here's our question For today then, why should we, why must we stick with what the Bible teaches when there are seemingly more attractive, more powerful messages, even messages about Jesus on offer? Isn't there a better way to know God? Can't we find a church that would give us something more current, something more powerful? So what does God have to say through uh, John the Apostle then to us this evening? Um, I have three headings. If you've got a notice sheet, I think they're on the back. Um, First one is this. The Apostle's witness is reliable. How can we know the truth about Jesus? That is the key question here we start with. How can we know what he really said and did and what he was like? And our first lesson is that we can absolutely believe the accuracy of God's word because the witnesses who wrote it, We're reliable. John says in verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard and which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The word of life there is Jesus. And what's John doing? All these references to touching and seeing and so on. He's reminding his readers, that he was an eyewitness to Jesus. Imagine, if you will, a court scene. Now, with some eminent uh, lawyers and the like around the place, I'm not looking at anyone in particular, but Eric's sat the front. Now, you'll have to forgive me for my sort of TV drama court set up here, I'm sure it's totally wrong, but we, we have, a, we have a, a murder trial and uh, the defendant stands in the dock and the the prosecuting lawyer is calling in the witnesses. And uh, here's the first one coming up, and the question comes, if anyone even ever asks this, where were you on the night of the murder? The witness says, "I I was out of town, but I've heard all about this case, and well, this guy seems like a nasty piece of work, I'm sure he's guilty. And up comes another witness, yeah, I wasn't terribly close either. But, you know, I've read about it on Twitter. And uh, uh, look at him. Look, He pretty, looks pretty unpleasant, doesn't he? He must be the murderer. And here comes another one. Where were you when the murder happened? I'm not sure it matters. Do you really need to know that? I've just got a feeling about this case. And I'm sure that's your man. Good evidence? Good evidence, what do you think? Do you think that case would ever have come to court? Mm. You see, here come the uh, here come the uh, the defence team and here are the defence witnesses and up they, they, they come and here's the first one. Where were you when the murder happened? Well, I was with the defendant. We were having dinner together in a restaurant miles away on the other side of town from where the murder happened and, and he was with me all evening. And here comes the second witness. Where were you? And What were you doing? Well, I was there too and we talked all evening and uh, I can even tell you the things that he ordered off the menu. And a third one well I was at the restaurant too I I happened to be the restaurant manager and and he was there all evening and here I've got the details of the credit card payment that he made about the time the murder happened to prove it it wouldn't have come to court would it of course it's a silly case but it's an important point are you going to listen to the witnesses who weren't there who don't know what they're talking about who have no evidence or are you going to listen to the ones who were there and saw and heard in detail. You see, the false teachers in John's day, they weren't there, they didn't know, they hadn't heard, they hadn't seen, they hadn't touched. The apostles, well, that's another matter. So what let's unpick then from the passage what John has to say about himself and the apostles in a bit more detail. Uh, a number of things quite briefly. First thing, there were multiple witnesses, multiple witnesses. Throughout the rest of the book, John writes in the first person. He says, little children, I write to you, and and so on. He says, I, I, I. But here in these first verses, he says, we. We have heard. We have seen. We have looked upon. We proclaim to you. Do you see the point? Over and over again, we, we, we. And by we, he's including not just himself, but the other apostles. Those who'd been with Jesus. In other words, the men who passed on the truth about Jesus, which was written down in the New Testament, some by these men directly, others by those who were closely associated with them. And so we have four Gospels, and we have the letters written by eyewitnesses and those who were closely associated to them. We have the truth of the apostles passed on. The evidence of multiple witnesses, of course, is always going to be much more powerful than one. And the witnesses corroborate each other. They agree Read the New Testament, read the Gospels, read the letters. You get a complete, corresponding, accurate picture of Jesus without contradictions. Secondly, these witnesses heard what Jesus said. Verse 1, which we have heard. This is Jesus, the, the, the word of life. How many hours of Jesus' is teaching did these apostles hear? Over three years or so, they were privileged to sit under his patient instruction. They listened as he explained to them the truth about God and and for his reason for coming. You see, their understanding of Jesus was not second-hand hearsay. It wasn't stuff that they'd overheard from a distance. No, they were with him day by day, listening as he taught them in detail. And what they heard is what we have. They heard, they saw, which we have seen with our eyes. They were there with Jesus throughout the years of his public ministry, literally watching on. Do you want an accurate account of what Jesus did and where he went? Well, these are the writers to trust. They were there. Not only they saw, but they touched. We touched with our hands. They lived in close quarters with Jesus. They were close to him physically. Here they are when he's asleep in a boat and there's a storm raging and they're shaking him to wake him up. And here's John at, the, at the, the Last Supper leaning against Jesus. And his, his, he was there in flesh and blood and they were with him. And they touched him. So there were multiple witnesses. They heard, they saw, they touched. And lastly, they proclaimed what they heard. This is really important because this is about their intention. What was the intention of John and the other apostles as they reported and wrote down what they saw? That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. We're not going to tell you something we've made up ourselves. We're not going to give you an artist impression, some sort of sketchy interpretation. We are going to tell you just what we saw and heard. And of course, when we approach the New Testament, when we read the Gospel accounts, they don't read like some kind of artist impression. They don't read like some kind of embellished myth. They don't read like something that's been some kind of flight of fancy based on some facts. They read like history. And that's what we'd expect because the intention of the apostles was to write history. Of course they have a purpose to bring us to Jesus and show us salvation through him. Of course they're doing that. But as they they do it, by writing and reporting the truth. And if you look at all the sheer number of facts and places and names and things that come up in the Gospels, you'll see that this is history grounded in the real world they told us what they saw and of course quite apart from all of that this is the infallible word of god Um, and they wrote as they were moved along by the holy spirit and the holy spirit is the perfect witness he doesn't make mistakes so the Apostles' witness is reliable then. When we come to the Bible, we can have great confidence that what we have in our hands, what's in our New Testament, and of course what's in the whole Bible, is true. This, 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 this book has start, is written by witnesses who were there and they knew and they saw and they intend to tell us what they saw. It's reliable. It's powerful. It's accurate. We can trust it. In the face of all the things that the world would throw at us, we can trust it. In the face of people telling us we need to update our message and that the Bible's got stuff wrong. We can trust what we have. The Apostle's witness is reliable. That's the first thing. Secondly, therefore believe the truth about Jesus. The Apostle's witness is reliable. Therefore believe the truth about Jesus. Because as we've already thought, what we believe about Jesus matters hugely. That's why John seems to go almost over the top here in emphasising the reliability of the Apostles' witness. We've touched, we've seen, we've heard and so on. And if you read through the rest of this letter as we were commenting earlier, you'll realise that the key truths about Jesus were under, under attack in John's day. And that's what false teaching Whatever it looks like is what it ultimately does. It attacks the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That he was the son of God seems to have been under attack. That he came in the flesh, that he had a body, that was under attack. And and what is it that John gives us here? What are the truths that he wants us to see? Well, let's look, shall we? Firstly, Jesus is the eternal son of God. A fact under attack in John's day. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. Verse 1 tells us that Jesus, the word of life, was from the beginning. That which was from the beginning. Verse 2 tells us that he is the eternal life. And then again he says that he is the one which was with the Father. I think that's quite clear. But it's worth referencing back to what we read earlier from John's Gospel as well. That's really helpful in in understanding this in a little bit more detail. John says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus then Is John, is God the Son. He's the second person of the Trinity, equal with the Father in every way, eternal. He is God himself. He has life in himself. The one who the apostles witnessed to is truly the eternal God. But perhaps someone here is thinking, how could they see this? How could they know this? Didn't he just look like a man? Well, it's worth pausing on that just for a moment. What did they witness? A few examples. And you could imagine if you want you were alongside them and think what you would come away with if you were. Here he is teaching the people with an authority that leads to a sense of wonder. He's so totally and completely different from any other teacher. The scribes and the Pharisees and the religious teachers of Jesus' day taught in a certain way but when they heard Jesus they said, what kind of teacher is this? He has authority not like them. And here he is um, with his disciples, and, and there's a terrible storm, and, and the boat's being smashed around, and, 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 the, and the disciples the fishermen, but they're scared they're going to die. And Jesus gets up, and what does he say? Peace, be still. The wind and the waves instantly drop, and it's calm, like a millpond. Who is this? Even the wind. And the waves obey him. Who can do that? Just God. And here's Jesus going up a mountain with Peter, James and John and suddenly his glory is seen and his face shines like the sun. Moses and Elijah, the the prophets of, of, of old times, appear. And then afterwards a voice cries out from heaven. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Could you ever mistake that? Could you ever forget that? But it's what's happened and what is reported to us. And here then are Peter and John standing at an open tomb. God has raised Jesus from the dead. And here they are seeing him appearing to them again and again. And here they are on a mountain after 40 days. And here is the risen Jesus and he's going up into heaven. And the angels say, the way that you've seen him go up, he will one day return. This is truly son of God and you know if he's not if we refuse to believe that then he can't save us because if Jesus is not God he cannot be our saviour we must have Jesus to be God but he is God that's what the witnesses tell us the evidence is overwhelming we can believe it we must believe it and if you feel timid about this stuff then be God, be bold, be confident that this is true. So he's the eternal son of God. He was revealed in the flesh, secondly. Verse 2, the life was made manifest or or, or the life appeared. How did he appear? In such a way that the disciples were able to touch him with their hands. Again, in the words of John's Gospel, chapter 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is the second crucial truth about Jesus, isn't it? Not only is he the eternal Son of God, but he became flesh. He became man. He became human, body and soul. He was fully human without ever being less God. Two natures together in one person. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who he is. And false teaching, of course, has attacked this throughout the ages and did so in John's day. They denied, and we see it in chapter 4, that Jesus truly became man. But if Jesus is not man, as well as God, he cannot be our saviour. He cannot take our place. Well, can we be sure well, how do the disciples know? Well, here they are, living with him for, for three years or more. They see that he is a, a man. They see him tired and weary after teaching the crowds and healing many. They are with him at Lazarus' grave as he cries tears of anguish over the despair of death. They see him in the garden of Gethsemane, crying out in anguish to God, sweating drops of blood. Not my will, but yours be done, he says, as the uh, the human will of Jesus submits gladly to the divine will. They see him hanging on the cross like the worst of criminals, dying in agony. And they come to understand that as he breathes his last, he reveals the depths of God's love. He pays the cost of salvation for all who believe in his name, for all who come to him in repentance and faith. And if you've never done that before tonight, then the offer is to you, come, put your faith in him and be saved. Know that he on this earth lived a perfect life for you in a way that you can never do and died the death taking the punishment that you deserve. So the eternal son of God became flesh and dwelt among us to buy our salvation by his perfect life and death. This is what the apostles saw and understood and this is what they declare to us in the Bible. And once again, the witnesses are so reliable and so accurate. We can trust these accounts with all of our hearts. So he's the eternal son of God. He was revealed in the flesh. He's the word of life. Jesus is the word of life, verse 3. What do words do? In, in John's Gospel, it says is the word. In the beginning was the word. And there's a, there's a mystery to that and a depth to that. But at least it says this about Jesus. He, as the Word, does what words do. Words describe things. They reveal truth. We read words, don't we, or we listen to them to learn. And Jesus is the Word of God. He reveals the truth about God. If we want to know about God, we look to Jesus. He is the truth about God revealed in human flesh in a person. And not only that, But here we see that he's the word of life. We see see in these verses that he's the eternal life. But not only the eternal life, he's the the word of life. And what does that tell us? Well, he is the way to eternal life. He is God's message of eternal life. It's not just that God has given us a, a message to be saved through. Of course he has. He has given us a person to be saved through. And if we want the eternal life that's freely offered to us, we find it and we see it and we receive it and we get it only in Jesus. And he offers that eternal life to all who come to him in faith. So do you see that nothing could matter more than to know Jesus? Without him there is no life, only death and judgment. For God so loved the world, though, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So the whole witness of the apostles then in the Bible points us to Jesus. They point us to a Jesus who came to give eternal life to sinful people. And that's your hope if you're a believer. But without the scripture, without this message, there is no hope. If you're not a believer, this is where we find Jesus. The reliable witness is to point to the truth about Jesus. He's the eternal Son of God. He was revealed in the flesh. He is the word of life. He's the gospel. Distort this message. There's no gospel. Accept it. And eternal life in Jesus Christ is yours. The apostle's witness then is reliable. Therefore, believe the truth about Jesus. Why? And this is where John is driving ultimately. Because it brings us into fellowship with God. It brings us fellowship with God. Why does all this matter so much? Why should I care about believing what the Bible says? Why shouldn't I believe my own version of the truth? Or why shouldn't I perhaps find a church that will tell me something different and take me away from the Bible? Why can't I put this book to one side and maybe look for a more direct experience of God? Verse 3. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So what is John saying? We have to pause and think about that a little bit. Relationship or fellowship with God only comes through Jesus. And we only know Jesus by coming into fellowship, if you like, with the apostles or rather through the truth that they have given us. We cut ourselves off from the Apostles' truth, we cut ourselves off from Jesus too. We come to this truth as set out for us in the Scriptures, and, by, and through relationship to this truth, through the relationship with the Apostles, we come to what? Jesus. We come to know Jesus. Jesus reveals God. He reveals the way to eternal life. The Apostles saw that firsthand, and they've entered into relationship with God and the Lord Jesus. And they pass on that truth and we enter through the scriptures, the truth of the scriptures through Jesus Christ. You can't miss out the Bible, you see. It's part of the chain. Without it, there's no hope, there's no Jesus. And the wonder is, getting that right leads us to eternal life. And we come then into relationship with God through the Jesus Christ of the Bible. We, we, we have this word fellowship and, and it can be translated differently depending on the context. I think here it's best understood as a, something like a personal relationship, relationship with God, knowing him, knowing the Father and the Son. That's the only way. But isn't it a wonderful way Isn't it the best way? It's very easy to say, I wish I had something better. But actually, what do we have? We have a message clearly written down. The truth about Jesus is clear for us to see. And it's unchanging. It's been the same. We've had the same text for 2,000 years, the same Bible, pretty much well, exactly the same Bible for pretty much 2,000 years rather, but we've had, this is the truth. The Bible is clear. It shows us what we need to know. We don't have to think, okay, so, so, so society's values have changed this year, we maybe need to update what the Bible says. We don't need to do that. Or, or, or perhaps I need to sit around and wait for some special experience of God that's unique to me and I don't know when it's going to come or what it's going to be like. We don't need to do that. We have a sure and certain word. We have a clear scripture. We have a presentation of Jesus as unchanging and is understandable and universal for everyone. But not only is that a wonderful fact, but actually the relationship itself, the fellowship itself, is wonderful too, and we must grasp that. It's an immense privilege to come into relationship with the eternal God. And in fact, actually, relationship with God, fellowship with God at his heart, is what eternal life is really all about. In John chapter 17, Jesus prays this great prayer shortly before he goes to the cross. And uh, um, it's a prayer that really does give us extraordinary insight into God's purposes for the world and God's purposes for his people. I just want to read the first part. Listen specifically to what Jesus prays right at the beginning of his prayer about eternal life. It's really interesting. Father, he prays, the hour has come, that's the cross. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you've given him authority over all flesh. Why? To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We know that eternal life is described in many ways in the Bible. Of course, it's living forever in a new world. Of course, it's freedom from death and judgment. And of course, it's life lived to the full and many other things. But the heart of it is this, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So this very fellowship with God we have here is the heart of eternal life that we come into through Jesus. Eternal life is about having fellowship and relationship with God, which starts in this world and continues for eternity into the world to come. And how do we have it? Through the Apostles' witness to Jesus. Through the Bible, not any other way. In this book, Jesus is presented to us in all of his riches, in all of his beauty, and all of his grace, all of his majesty. And that's the Jesus we trust in, not some other Jesus. And through this book, God speaks to us. Relationship involves him talking to us. He goes on revealing himself to us in Jesus as the Holy Spirit works in our lives. To be a Christian is to to know this. It's not just agreeing a set of, a believing a set of facts. It's about knowing God. And that's what John would have for all his readers. And outside of this, there is no hope. There is no knowing God. And we don't, we don't need something different. We don't want some kind of experience. We don't need an updated Jesus. Actually, when you get to and, and you grasp and you understand the wonder of what we have and the wonder of what's on offer, all those things look pretty rubbish. I remember a talk years and years ago, probably a ministry that doesn't exist anymore, hopefully, but uh, where the speaker uh, really played down the importance of the Bible. He, he effectively said, well, yes, the Bible's good and correct, but I, I, you know, this, it's like my marriage contract. I got married and the contract was signed, and that's important, but I put it in the drawer because I don't spend my days looking at the marriage contract. I talk to my wife. And that's what I do with God. I don't spend my days looking at the Bible. I talk to God directly and He talks back. Now, maybe a teaching that you've not heard and doesn't matter. But the point is what is the lesson that we learn from it? What would that be like? Imagine you were getting married to someone. And imagine you said to them, I'm not going to listen to you. I'm not interested in really in what you say. Hopefully no one's marriage is like that. I got a bit of a laugh when I said that last week. But, you know, it's like not listening to your husband or your wife. And it's like putting words in their mouth and saying, I think you like this and I think you want to do this and I think you think this way. Imagine how well that marriage is going to go. I know what you think, don't tell me. Yeah, I don't think that's going to go well, is it? Well, actually, wonderfully, what we have is a relationship with a God who speaks. And here are his words. And they're living words as the Holy Spirit speaks through them to us. This is the way we hear God's voice. The eternal God speaks to us. Jesus Christ is revealed to us. You want to talk to your husband and wife, don't you? You want to know them a little better every day, to understand their preferences and their thoughts and their likes and their dislikes and their way of thinking. And you want to enjoy them for who they are. And we want to know God better and enjoy him for who he is. And and we're in relationship with him if we're believers. And that's a glorious, rich, wonderful thing. And John says that if we come into relationship with God through the truth of the apostles, if that's where we are, then that brings great joy to him. And it brings great joy to us too. It's a joyful thing. Well, if you're struggling to trust the Bible at the moment, if that's difficult for you, if you can't get over how outdated it seems, or you struggle to see how God's Word could be t- contained in a 2,000 year old book, well, be encouraged. When you listen to the news tomorrow and you, you feel like you're being told that your faith is bigoted and silly, well, be encouraged. Remember what God's Word really is. It's true, it's accurate, it's life giving. It's the way to God through Jesus. When your colleagues or your school friends laugh at you and, or they're outraged because of the idea that there's only one way to God and they despise the Bible because of its outdated moral standards, how are you going to respond? Are you going to be embarrassed? Are you going to avoid the question? Are you going to feel worried that perhaps they're right and perhaps I'm going to struggle with the Bible and there's stuff in here I don't really like and can't we change it? No, you can respond with confidence. You can respond by sharing Jesus, by pointing them to the Jesus of the Bible in the knowledge that that, 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 that the record is true. And this Jesus is the word of life. He gives life. He gives eternal life. He opens blind eyes. He brings people to him. And the word of God declared in the scripture. The word of life we see here. This Jesus is the one who saved me and saved you and can save anyone here who is not yet saved and can save our friends and our relatives and those who laugh at us. And this is real, and it's true, and it's believable. That's what we have. And we can hope and expect to see those around us brought into relationship with God. The Apostle's witness, then, is reliable. It really is. Therefore, we can and we must believe the truth about Jesus. And that truth wonderfully brings us into relationship with God. There's nothing more important in all the world. And there's nothing more important wonderful do you know him are you trusting him are you enjoying him amen